So, hi everyone. Hi again. So, we left off last week. Last week, our class covered, first of all, the overview of the Jewish timeline. Remember that? We started basically going all the way from Abraham and just like covering, reading through up until the destruction of the Second Temple when um, Israel became under Roman uh, sovereignty, being part of the Roman Empire. And I laid the context, the setting in which the second uprising, revolt of the Jews against Rome will happen, second and last. The first uprising was the Great Revolt, the one that started in the year 66 and resulted in the destruction of the second one. The second one is the one that we're going to discuss at length today. I gave you the context last week. I want to start off, however, with pointing out a big difference. The first revolt, although it had some religious um, components, like we want to be free, we, want to have, we don't have Gentiles of a Gezerah controlling the whole land of Israel, there was religious components to it, but it was to a great deal a war of nationalism, in the war of independence, trying to regain Jewish sovereignty, like they had had before the Romans came, or as I told that we provided, we already talked about that last week, they tried to re re regain Jewish sovereignty, to be a Jewish state, a Jewish kingdom in the land of Israel. So that completely blew up in their faces, there's no other word, because instead of regaining Jewish sovereignty, they only brought upon themselves hell and destruction and losing national places like the Beis Hamikdash, like the Holy Temple, which they had. At least they had religious sovereignty. Now they lost that as well. Plus, they became like completely under cruel Roman um, control. And then 60 years go by. A lot of things happen in 60 years. Okay, just take a minute. The temple was destroyed in 70, in the year 70. So 60 years go by, and I gave you the context. There's a new emperor, or a change of a couple of emperors. So the emperor that is now is called Hadrian. He is a devout Hellenist. A Hellenist meaning he is of a strong believer in Greek philosophy and Greek ideals. Importance of beauty, the importance of paganism, and so on and so on. Powers of nature are the gods, Greek philosophy. Right? We, you might be familiar with the, the work uh, of uh, right? uh, Ulysses. Right? All the, all the, whole, the whole paganism of Greek, be it the, all the gods, Neptune and, and, and Zeus, which are all powers of nature. Greek philosophy, contrary to a more ancient paganism, which showed the gods in the stars and the heavens, Greek paganism sees the gods on earth. The ocean has a god. Thunder is a god, okay? And so on and so on. And actually, man could become a god if he knows how to accomplish the 12 works of Hercules and achieve the ascension to the Olympus mountain. The remnant of that philosophy today is the Olympic Games. Mm -hmm. It's a remnant of, it's not paganism anymore, but it's a remnant 
of that philosophy, meaning if you can be the best and the brightest at a physical thing, then you're godlike. And if you can master all, all like all, all, all challenges, then you you go up to Mount Olympus and you become a god, which is if you know the word, pan, uh, uh, um, apotheos. You know that word, apotheos. Huh? Um, no, I don't think so. No. Apotheos is a Greek word, still used today in French, to describe a paroxysm, a culmination of perfection. But it's a Greek word that means apo is man, theo is God. Apotheos is man becoming God. So they saw beauty and divine in nature, in the powers of nature, and even in humans, and even in human bodies. And Hellenism, like every belief, you can live it in a simple way, or you can live it in an extreme, almost fanatical way, where everything has to be according to that. Hadrian was a fanatical Hellenist. He wanted the Roman Empire to be exactly faithful to the true beliefs of Hellenism. Building temples for gods all over the place. And thus, Hadrian set out throughout his empire to build again, to rebuild temples for different gods. He felt that there were not enough temples. And also to make sure that core values of Hellenism should be preserved. It went well, more or less, throughout the Roman Empire until he started messing with the Jews in Judea. It started with him saying, oh, Jerusalem is in ruins. That's such a pity. That's a sore sight for the eyes. We should rebuild this city. It should be a beautiful city. Jews said, hey, this guy, yeah, he's, a good, he's a good guy. But then he went on saying, and we should have on the Temple Mount a huge temple for Jupiter. Jews said, well, a temple for Avodah for idol worship? And then he said, what are you guys doing? Judaism is doing circumcision. Oh, no, 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 you can't do that. That's absolutely contrary to principles of beauty as preached in Hellenism. No, I don't want that in my empire. So guys, no more circumcision. And the Jews were like, haha, grinning in his face, and then behind him, like, in your dreams. Okay, like that's ever going to happen. But he also tackled Shabbat. His wife, why should a man should be productive? What do you mean you become a lazy person one, once a week? You don't work. Because nature is going to wait around. And that's how he got, and that's what I told you already last week, he got again a, a, a revolt brewing again. It, ha it didn't happen over one year. It took almost a decade. But eventually there was a boiling pot that was ready to explode. And I put it in a provocative way on the board. Uh, the green doesn't come out so well. I called it the Jihadi War of Independence of the Jews. Why did I call it that way? What do you mean, why is it the Jihadi War? Because first and foremost, it was a holy war. And let's talk about that for a moment. In Judaism, do we have holy wars? I mean, wars that are commanded by religion or for religion? So let's go into that. The conquest of Eretz Yisrael was, but that was 
initially, okay, that was right in the beginning. Then to defend the land of Israel of enemies, okay, it's a religious commandment. Or to defend other Jews that are being uh, attacked, that's a religious commandment. Now what about if a non-Jew or whoever wants me to go against Torah, wants me to go against religion? So here there are two parts to it. There's the low key and the high key. The low key requirement, the minimum requirement is that you are willing to do whatever it takes to not abandon Torah, even if it's at the price of your own life. You say, that's Loki? Yeah, that's Loki. Because it's passive. Meaning, you're not going to do it. You try to keep Torah to the best of your capacities. If by doing so, God forbid, it should cost you your own life, then you have to do it. Although some of you might say, but one second, isn't Judaism all about that preserving a life is, is stronger than religious laws? Like you don't keep Shabbat if it's to serve a life, you eat on Yom Kippur if it's to save a life, etc., etc., etc. Don't you like put discard the whole Tyra if it's to save a life? So the answer is yes, with two notable exceptions. One, is the exception of three, what is called capital mitzvot, which is idol worship, murder, and illicit sexual relationships. Meaning if, if in one of those three things, to keep them, it would cost me my life, well then, I still have to keep them, and unfortunately lose my life. This is what it's called in Hebrew, Yehareg, better be killed, Val Yavor, and don't transgress. But it's only on three mitzvahs out of 613. So, meaning on 610 mitzvahs, the, the going rule is, stay alive. Do what you have to do, stay alive. Right? That's, that's the, the direction. Now, second exception, I said first exception. First exception were three capital mitzvahs. Second exception, if it's a moment where they try to uproot Jewish religion, if it's an attempt to uproot Jewish religion, then you give your life even for the smallest details of a Jewish custom. So a simple example. The Nazis were not out to uproot Jewish religion. They were here to uproot Jews. The Jews saying to a Nazi, but I'm not religious. Nazis say, I don't care. <laughs> Besides the point, actually, a person could even say to a Nazi, according to Judaism, I'm not even Jewish. A Nazi would still say, I don't care if your father was Jewish. So it has nothing to do with religion. It has to do with survival. It's an all-out war on existence. Then, yes, Torah will say, do whatever it takes to stay alive. As long as it's not one of the three capital uh, offenses, all the rest, like eat non-kosher, travel on Shabbat, do what it takes, stay alive. Communism was out to upward religion. It's very clear. Communism was against religion. And that's why Jews 
who stayed faithful and did not manage to, 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 to leave Russia, sometimes gave their lives even for things like going to mikvah in the morning for a man, which is a Hasidic custom, not even something you have to do. Because you go all the way. If it's a, if it's a war on religion, if religion is the goal of that war, then there is no, there's like, there's no exception. There's no difference in what mitzvah it is, even if it's only a minhag. Person go all the way. But we're still talking low key, low key, meaning the person is doing their religion, hoping not to get caught. We still stay smart, try not to get caught. But if it will cost the person's life, so be it. It's called Kiddush Hashem, sanctification of God's name. But then there's high key. I know it's not an expression we use. But meaning going all in, not low key, not passive, active. Meaning not only trying to keep religion alive and trying to escape the, persecu the religious persecution. And another example I can give is, of course, uh, Spain in 15th century with the Maranos, 15th, 16th century with the Inquisition. We just try and stay low and survive. But actively, let's go and fight those who want to attack religion. See? That's a jihad. That's active. Me, Hashem, Eli. Whoever is for God should join me. That was the rally cry of who? who? The Maccabi, the Matisiao, yeah. As you said, Matisiao. So that was one Jewish jihad. I'm doing it on purpose to use the word because we are uncomfortable with the word. That's why I'm making I'm having fun using the word. Because for us, jihad is crazy Muslims, which is true. Because they got it all wrong. But the prince, but the word meaning holy war. When did we fight a war of religion? Fighting for religious freedom. Two times. First time with the Maccabi, Matisiao. Mm -hmm. And the Greeks, like they, their jaws dropped. Because never ever in history at that time had a nation ever risen up to fight for religious rights. Didn't happen. Don't give your life for that. The second time is now. 132. When Hadrian is enforcing extreme Hellenism on the Jews of Israel, which is still the main center of Jewish life, and I explained that to you last week, they decide to rally. It will take time. For years, they will prepare weapons. They will prepare escape routes. They will prepare caves. You can still go, and if you have a good tour guide, he can still take you to complete cave systems in the hills of Judea that the fighters of that war used, going in from one cave, underground system, like Warsaw ghetto system, but throughout the whole countryside. Going in and out almost what the Viet Cong did in Vietnam, like appearing and disappearing in the jungle. So here we don't have a jungle, but still they knew the land, they were home. The rabbis, and it's important, I, can't, I will not stress this enough, the rabbis, the sages, who in the previous rebellion, in the Great Revolt, had backed out in the middle, 
true, they were there in the beginning, but they had backed out in the middle. In the middle of the Great Revolt, the rabbi's position had changed to, let's surrender. Initially, in the Great Revolt, rabbis were in favor of it, and then it turned out the way it turned out, with also accompanied with a bloody civil war amongst the Jews, so rabbis switched their position from fighting the Romans to surrender and accepting the Roman terms. That was in 66-70, the first rebellion. In this rebellion, the rabbis are all in. Because they say, the sages are all in. They say, this is a milchamas mitzvah. This is a, a milchama, it's a war that you have, it's a mitzvah, it's a commandment to participate in. But it's also a war of independence. Because Jews say, if we are ready there, like I told you like, last week, if anyways you're going for it, go all the way, and let's try to have Jewish sovereignty, because it does go together with jihad, because only through proper Jewish sovereignty will, will, will we be able to ensure religious freedom. So yes, they, they say, let's go already all the way to sovereignty, but it's still with the, the, the idea of rebellion. Now you know, a rebellion always needs a leader. Rabbis, sages, were the spirit of it. The leading rabbis amongst them was a famous rabbi called Rabbi Akiva. Rabbi Akiva. He was close to, he was, he was actually more than 110 years old. But he was the, the authority Literally, the authority. He was the big. He was the like he was the Rebbe. He was the Gadol Hador, the giant of the generation. He was the torchbearer of Judaism. And here came along a Jewish. Let's call him general, because Jews were like preparing themselves for the battle. So a Jewish platoon leader, captain, general. Terms don't matter because, anyways. The titles didn't exist. His name was Shimon. He came from a small town called Kosipa, with an S. Uh, there's actually a discussion if Kosipa, there are two parts. Is Kosipa a town to the south of Jerusalem, a little bit like between Jerusalem and Hebron, or is Kosipa a town on the shore, like close to Akko? Um, it doesn't matter. But he's known as Shimon Bar Kosiba, son of Kosiba. But in those times, when you said son, it doesn't necessarily mean filiation. It can also mean geographical origin of Kosiba. He's charismatic. He's very strong. Strong, filthy, very strong. He's big, and he rallies troops around him. He is the I don't know how much you know Second World History. But England, like who's, no, no one's from England here. Yeah. Oh, you are. Oh, yeah, Sabrina, right. So Sabrina will more understand what I'm referring to. But he was even more than that. I was going to say a Churchill. A person who inspires and leads in times of war, even if you seem to be on the losing end of things because you're like 
you're an island in a sea of Nazi kingdom. Like, what do you, what you think is going to happen? Uh, the Romans got to England as well. I mean, eventually, it only takes boats. Uh, I mean, imagine the other way around, okay? England and America and the Allies eventually, from the island, took back the mainland. So if you can work in that way, imagine how much more it could have worked the other way around. Let's think about it for a moment, right? If from one island you can take over a mainland, so can the mainland take over one island? <clears throat> sure you can. There was a beginning battle of England, etc. Eventually, the Nazis gave up, but let's not go oh, World War II. But when it barely even started, there was a person who stood up and spoke the truth. Said there will be blood, there will be tears, but we will never give up. We will, we will go to the victory. And he rallied people around him. Now he, he, he goes even further. He's not only a talker, he is also a military man on, meaning on site carrying arms and thus starts but Rabbi Akiva re, the, the Gadol Hador the giant of the generation renames him instead of being called Baal Koziba the one who Baal Koziba who comes from Korsiba Baal Koziba Shimon his name is Rabbi Akiva Surnames and gives them a new name, a nickname, Bar Kochva, the son of the star, Kochav. In a way, also alluding to the verse that there is in Bamidbar that says, in, verse in, the, Torah, in uh, the book of Numbers, that says, One day will come where a star will shoot out of Jacob. And it talks about, about the ushering into the Messianic age. And Rabbi Akiva says, that's him. That's the Shimon. And thus, in the year 132, under the military leadership of Shimon Bar Kochva, now named Bar Kochva, the Jews set out in their holy war of independence. And they are successful. They manage to chase the, Jew, the Roman legions out of Jerusalem. They actually managed eventually to chase the Romans out of the whole land of Israel. There's no Romans left. Almost two Roman legions were kicked to the curb. Of course, a great deal of them dying in battle. They got rid of the Romans. V-Day, right? Literally, Victory Day. Shimon Bar Kochva establishes his siege, his, 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 his siege, yes, yeah, not siege, his, 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 his seat is like court in Jerusalem. He takes away runes from the base of Megdash, builds a Jewish altar, and Karbanais are started again. It's a very lone fact, little known fact. A beginning of service of the temple is reinstated, completely valid according to Halacha. And this is, by the way, most people are under the impression that the last time there was some kind of divine service on the Temple Mount 
was in the year 69, or early 70, right? Just before the destruction of the temple. Yeah, but not really. There was again. And not for one day or one month, for a long time. You know what's one of the most chilling things that archaeologists found? It's when they, one day, somewhere in caves or in other excavation places, came upon, uh, came upon coins. So they unearthed them, and they started reading it. And then they read, Shimon, Nasi Yisrael, and on the other, and then the other side it says, Cherut Yehuda, Freedom of Judea, Shana Aleph, Year One. And then they found coins where it said, also similar, Shimon Nasi Yisrael, Yehuda, Shana Base, Year Two, meaning there was a beginning of a state. They minted coins. It means enormously in history. If you have a society that is minting coins, it means that there is already some kind of economy that is up and working. They got to work. They got rid of the Romans. They got to work. And that's why Rabbi Akiva did not hesitate to go openly public proclaiming, saying that Shimon Bar Kokhba was Melech HaMashiach, was the King Messiah himself. And most rabbis agreed with him. I say most, because there were some rabbis who disagreed. Although they did not have an actual argument supporting their disagreement, they just said, uh-uh. There was a rabbi, remind me his name, Rabbi Yochanan ben Tarta, less known rabbi, who says to Rabbi Akiva, he says, grass will grow on your cheeks before Moshiach will be here. I mean, yeah, that's a very <clears throat> interesting way of saying you will be dead and buried by then. Meaning, you're saying this is Moshiach, but this is not Moshiach. It's interesting because they, besides that they disagree, they don't, like, why? Based on why? Why are you disagreeing? Maybe this is Moshiach. Say, nah, uh-uh, this is not Moshiach. Yeah. I don't know. Let's assume. Interesting question. Yes. When they did they say to him, "Oh yeah, like you're our king, you're going to be Moshiach," but did he agree with it? It could be. We don't find places. We don't find places that he didn't agree. Listen, the thing is, you see, in history, two years. Is, is barely a hiccup. No, li- li- really. Two years is barely a hiccup. Like, like barely a, a something. Why? Because they won? Yeah, put brackets on that. Because true, they did kick the Romans out of, of Israel. True, they established Jewish sovereignty. Yes, they minted coins. Yes, they restarted temple service, although in a very restricted form, because the temple was actually not standing, but you can still bring a karbanot, sacrifice, even without the whole temple standing, just need to be a mizbeach on Harabais. But Hadrian didn't let this light. 
No one rebelled against Rome. We're not talking Rome, third century, where it's starting to disintegrate. Where the English already said to the Romans, have a good swim, uh, and so on and so on. Okay, where we're slowly, slowly, like, collapsing. That's the third century. This is the beginning of the century. This is Paxis Romanos, if you know that term, which is Roman peace throughout the world. The whole world is Rome. Rome goes from, from, from northern England all the way to, to, to Pakistan. Seriously. The whole world is Rome. What is this, what is this crazy saying? A bunch of Jews kicked Rome out? <laughs> oh, no, you didn't. And Hadrian knowing that the previous Jewish rebellion was a difficult one. It lasted for five years, from the year 66 till the year of seven years, till the year 73. Seven years, which is a crazy amount of time for such a small place. And it costed a lot of Roman life. Hadrian sent in, hold tight, hold tight. Hadrian sent in 12 Roman legions. Now you say, why are you holding tight? The whole of the Roman Empire had 24 legions. The whole of the Roman Empire is 24 legions. He sent 12 legions in. Basically, half of the Roman might he sent in on Judea. It's going to be a tsunami of firepower, if you want to say, of forces. He's not taking any chances. He's bringing his best general. Maybe Sabrina is going to be flattered once again. His best general is Julius Severus. Julius Severus is the one that was fighting with the wildlings. I know you're thinking that I'm referring to a certain series or whatever, which I did not see, but, I, but it's an actual historical fact. They were wildlings in the north of England. And eventually, the Romans built a wall. Okay, it, this is historical history. Romans built the wall because they said, you know what? Let them just stay over there, whatever. And, and be with their sheep and we'll just have over here. But so the big, it, it was a big Roman general called Julius Severus. He was holding, the, he was holding England, which was Northern Europe. And he was called in. He was called in to lead the 12, 12 legions, half of the Roman army. Imagine today America sending somewhere 50% of their armed forces. Like, where? China? No, seriously. Like, 50% of the armed forces? <laughs> where? I just know that any war of Iraq was not even a fifth. You know, what, you, know what, you know how much you're talking about? You're crazy? That what? The Romans did that. And it's going to be, unfortunately, a slaughter. No coins of Shimon Nosi Israel Shana Shalosh, Shimon Prince of Israel, year three, were ever found. There's no year three. And although the Romans arrived with such power, they still took their time. This will take three years. No, two years. The Romans will come back at the end of 134. 132, 133, they're not here. They got kicked out. They got taken by surprise. Hey, it doesn't count. And then they come back in 134. They could have had it over in a couple of months, but 
Julius Severus wants to have as minimum as Roman life loss. Not because they were such humanitarians, because he doesn't want to. So he's not going to go into open battle with the Jews. Dio Cassius is going, Dio Cassius is a Roman histo historian. There's a Roman historian. He lived in the second century. He lives in that period of time. His books, you can look them up, even they're online. You can even have them online in their original language, which is Latin, but then you might not know what the heck they're saying. So they're online also with their translation. So let me read to you what Dio Cassius writes. Severus did not venture to attack his opponents in the open at any one point. In view of their numbers and their desperation. Okay, this is a Roman historian, historian so he has to belittle the enemy as much as he can. What he calls desperation is what I described to you last week as religious fanaticism, a kamikaze attitude of crazy eyes where we don't care that we're dying. The most difficult people to fight against. People who have craziness in their eyes and don't mind dying. They're like going on suicide. It's kamikaze. It's very difficult. So Severus did not want to go head on, but by intercepting small groups. Thanks to the number of soldiers and his officers, yeah, you have half of the Roman army with you, and by depriving them of food and shutting them up. You understand his strategy? He's choking them up. He doesn't confront them in a noble battle. You need provisions. So he like blocks the roads. There's no big formation of troops against troops, but he makes sure that he is eventually choking them up one by one. He was able, rather slowly to be sure, but with comparatively little danger, to crush, exhaust, and exterminate them. Very few of them, in fact, survive. 50 of their most important outposts and 985 of their most famous villages were razed to the ground. Important thing. Romans don't make a difference between soldiers and civilians. Then any place of Jewish inhabitation gets leveled to the ground. They don't make a difference. So it's, it's, a, it's a slaughter. 580,000 men were slain in various raids and battles. Some historians think that this is a little exaggerated, but maybe. And the number of those who perished by famine, disease, and fire was past finding out. Thus, nearly the whole of Judea was made desolate, a result of which the people had had forewarning before the war. For the tomb, tomb of Solomon, which the Jews regarded as an object of veneration, fell to pieces of itself and collapsed. We have no idea where that is. The Acacias talks about a big Jewish shrine, which is the tomb of Solomon, that was completely destroyed. Well, it was so well destroyed that up until today, we have no idea where the Thomas Shulman is. They never even found anything. And many wolves and hyenas rushed howling into the cities. Many Romans, however, perished in this war with everything. Like I said, the crazy Jews. Therefore, Hadrian, in writing to the Senate, did not employ the opening phrase commonly affected by emperors, if you and your children are in hell, it is well, and I and my legions are in hell. 
You think Hadrian, when he reported to Senate that he had crushed the war, did not use the opening sentence since he couldn't use it. Since with, although he took his time and he took his precautions, it still also was bloody for the Romans. Jews did not just shit it out. It ended all in the year 135. Whatever was remaining of the Jews and of the fighters retreated to a city which was quite fortified to the southwest of Jerusalem. The city was called Betar. Today, there's a Jewish city that is called Betar Elite. Two names, which means the heights of Betar. Because actually, it's on the hilltop that, it's, that is overseeing where the biblical, I mean, initial Betar was. But that's where the last, like, like the Alamo. That was, that's where the last battle was. Kind of their Masada, if you know the story of Masada, with, in the Fourth Rebellion. Difference is, they did not commit suicide. They fought it out. They fought it out and lost. Now you say, that's a sad story, but the story doesn't stop here. Because the Romans did not stop with, we won the war. No. That was step one. Step one, crush the rebellion and reassertain sovereignty. Step two, crush the spirit behind the rebellion. What was the spirit behind the rebellion? Religion, right? So go all out, a war against religion. And here the Jews are going to maintain religion in secrecy. But the rabbis won't be able to be as secretive about it, because they are rabbis. So they will be seen. Romans will prohibit teaching Torah. Rabbis will always teach Torah. Prohibit circumcision, we said, but even more. And rabbis will continue to do that. And it is in that period of time, in the couple of years that will follow, 135, 36, 37, and beginning of 38, three years, that it will be the, one of the most brutal religious persecution with the biggest, one of the most biggest religious price. If you know of the, 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 this passage, liturgical passage in the prayer book of Yom Kippur, you might know of a passage that is called the Ten Martyrs, Asurei Harugei Malchut, the Ten Holy Martyrs. That passage describes, sometimes in gruesome details, how ten of the biggest of the brightest sages were killed publicly, in most cases, by the Romans. When did this happen? A lot of people don't realize when. When, when was this? This is here. A lot of people don't also know. They all say, oh, like Baomer, Bar Yochai, because Bar Yochai, uh, yeah, and then they say, tell me a story about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, another Jewish sage. A lot of people know the story. Shimon Bar Yochai lived in a cave for 12 years. Uh-huh, why? Because he spoke against the Romans. <laughs> Was it Stalin? Yeah, or worse. No, seriously, worse. When did this happen? Same aftermath. People don't make the connection. And thus Rabbi Akiva, the, the sage, as he was 120 years old, was caught publicly teaching Torah and was flayed, his skin being ripped off from him. 
with iron cones. And he died screaming the Shema. And Rabbi Ishmael and Elisha, and, and, and you name it. Sages after sages. It was one of the most dark time of Jewish history. And it gave a tremendous push to diaspora. Why? Because it was not possible to live in the land of Israel anymore. I discussed it last week with you already. That there was already diaspora, but Israel was still like the center. Like, that's like, and the rest were like, I mean, not cop-outs, but yeah, yeah, a little bit of cop-outs. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not Hasidish. You're not living in the real place where it's all happening. But after this war, and with the religious persecution, and rabbis being killed, sages being killed, a lot of Jews fled, those who left. By the way, the Romans crushed the spirit religiously and also nationally. They forbade Jews to ever enter the city of Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the first Judenrein, clean of Jews, Jew, city in the world. Forbidden for a Jew to enter the city of Jerusalem, whatever was left of it. 200 years later, they will lift that ban, but only for one day. The, only one day a year, Jews were allowed back in the city of Jerusalem. On what is the Hebrew day of the ninth of this month of Av. To like, 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 really like rub it into them. Everything was destroyed. You lost. Don't ever dream of trying again. And, and Jews will not for 1,800 years until 1948. This was the last war of independence that was fought until 1948. 1,800 years will pass. 1,813 years will pass. By the way, talking about the Ninth of Av, the Ninth of Av, in a cruel, predestined date, is the date that the city of Beitar will finally fall. The last fighting place of Bar Kochva and his soldiers. Bar Kochva, by the way, did not make it all the way till the end. He, he died in Beitar during one of the metal, many uh, assaults against the city. In one of the assaults, he was killed, but his man still uh, fought it out. I have to share with you an interesting theory, and I cannot stress the word theory enough, because it's just a theory. Did I say theory in enough times? Good. But there is an interesting theory. Rabbi Akiva was the biggest sage of the time. And his opinion was an all-out war against the Romans. And it ended in complete slaughter. Huh. How did Rabbi Akiva lose all his students? Following the theory? 
is the Talmud talking in an enigmatic way, which will not be the first time when it talks about a disease that killed the 24,000 students of Rabbi Akiva. Because it wouldn't make sense that the disciples of Rabbi Akiva would have been at the forefront of what their leader, their Rebbe, said to be a holy war and mitzvah. That's like, right? But, or, 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 no, that happened early on in his life. And this is something else. Or is it? There is one, uh, I think, Yalkut Shimoni, that has a kind of a tricky wording that talks about the pulmus. But you see, instead of talking magaifo, the Babylonian Talmud talks, talks about an epidemic. And there is another rabbinical teaching that talks about pulmus. Now what is interesting is that pulmus might refer to an epidemic, but can also talk about a war. They said that they all died in the pulmus. Interesting theory. And here I come to the other point, which will not be history, it will be more like Jewish thought. Did what were, the what were the religious conclusion from the debacle? Because here I want to ask a religious question, a theological question. Why did they lose? Why did they lose? They, what did they do wrong? Those were all religious people. Oh, I have to read to you a testimony from one of the archaeologists that for the f was one of the first to have uh, um, like testimony of the of of the uh, oh, of the Bar Kokhva uprising. By the way, you should know I'm giving you today a class about Bar Kokhva uprising. That is a class that is compiled out of discoveries that were mainly made in the last decades. For a very long time, people did not know most of the facts. Because the facts were all over the place and some of them were hidden. I want to read to you um, a testimony of Yigal Yadin. Yigal Yadin was an archaeologist, an Israeli archaeologist. So he says, we were digging in the desert of Judea, in the caves over there, when one of the people working for me brings me a very old bag. I open the bag, and in the bag there are papyruses attached together with papyrus thread. It's very old, like the paper from once upon a time. I started trembling. Very patiently, I started opening those documents up with the help of specialized technicians. And then I start reading them with help of plates. And I'm reading a letter, someone asking that they should be, that Etrogim and Lulavim should be brought to them. And when I get to the end of the letter, and it's written in ancient Hebrew, not Aleph Beis that we today use, a little bit different, I, I started shaking from all my body when I saw the person signing the letter, Shimon Bar Kosiba Nasi Israel. He was holding in his hands a letter 
that Shimon Bar Koziba, Bar Kochla, had sent to someone asking for supplies of Esrik and Lulav. You imagine being an archaeologist in 1960 and holding in your hands a, a, a letter that dates from 1,500 years ago that sheds light on a period of time that is, that is little known. By the way, Dead Sea Scrolls, Bar Kokhba letters, they were, it's, it's a feature of, it's a feature of, of archaeology, the unique um, levels of sodium in the air and the dry air of the Judea desert produced extraordinary for things to be preserved. Like a natural server preservation. That's why things of he, he could like open up a letter of thousand five hundred. If you today take a piece of paper and you write with your pen and it says thousand five hundred years, no one is going to find the piece of paper. It's, no, it's not going to be a piece of paper. The piece of paper is going to disintegrate. Not in thousand years, not in five hundred years, way before that. It's just going to fall in, become dust. So I'm asking you the question, and you give me answers. Those were religious people. They fought a good cause. They were animated by the most nobles of, 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 of uh, considerations. Why did they lose? And my, my question is, spiritually, don't answer to me because they were wrong. No, no. For Hashem, that's not, a, that's not a criteria. See, the Maccabean rebellion, right? Why did they lose? Anyone want to venture? Okay, go ahead, anyone. Or, or you know what question my question, if you don't like my question. I mean, I feel like it's an oversimplification to be like, well, because Hashem wanted it to be. When I have a message, it's in the plan. It's in your I mean, you know, insights into it, but they would have lost if Hashem didn't want them to lose. If there was some reason why they couldn't say. True. But what, which will, I, I like for but it doesn't lead to a follow-up question. And why didn't Hashem want them to win? So we know well, we Hashem wants or not. Well, I think when you look at the following 1,500 years, it's like obviously there's some years tragedy and so many horrible things, but then you also look at all of the good that Jews in the diaspora were able to do and the things that they were able to bring into the world and the societies that they were able to influence in okay. really meaningful ways. So it's like if that had never I like your answer. You're saying there's a divine plan, and okay, fine. You did everything, did everything but there was a greater cause. And you even if it for you it meant losing and tremendous tragedy itself, the greater cause. Okay, thank you. Yes. Well, it, it's interesting. There is a in the Babylonian Talmud. And Babylonian Talmud, just kind of hint to that, that Bar Kochva himself, especially towards the end, became like, not worthy anymore. There's a story where he might have killed someone else that he suspected that was collaborating with the Romans, another sage. What is interesting is that uh, uh, Maimonides writes the following about this, uh, this period. 
And then you say, why, where? Maimonides doesn't write history books. He wrote halacha books. But in halacha, there is the laws of... of uh, no, not in the laws... Oh, actually, he does bring him also the laws of Mashiach. But I was referring to the laws of fast. In the laws of fast, he talks about the fast of Tisha B'Av. He says, why do we fast on Tisha B'Av? So he says, first temple, second temple, and then he tells the following story. And there was also a great city named Betar that fell on this day. They were there, tens of thousands of Jews. They had a big king. All, among them the greatest sages, believed that he was the king Mashiach. He, however, fell to the man, to the, in the hands of our enemies, and everybody was massacred. It was a disaster equal to the destruction of the temple. So there's no, here in that description, there's no, like, Saying, yeah, like, like, like halfway, and like, yeah, maybe not. No, he's like going all in. It was a great city, there was a great king. Everybody, like, he's completely oblivious to the Gemara saying, well, there was somebody, yeah, yeah, we don't care about that someone. Everybody said he was Mashiach. <laughs> Interesting, because the Gemara only says that Rabbi Akiva said that he's Mashiach, and that it was this other rabbi, Rabbi Yochan ben Tartar, who contradicted him. And my man is when he tells the story, he says, everybody, including the biggest Chachamim, said, that he was Mashiach. And it fell in the hands of our enemies. So he puts the word enemy. He doesn't say, he could have said the words, and they were not worthy or something like this. He, didn't, he could have put like some kind of hint to, and, but they sinned, you know, or but they forgot God or whatever. No. He's showing it like Choban Bet HaMikdash. So I, I, Juliana, I, I hear your answer. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go about it a little bit differently. And maybe also explaining why the theory that the 24,000 pupils of Rabbi Akiva, that although the Talmud in, 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 in the Babylonian Talmud explicitly said that they died from an epidemic. Never. They died of an epidemic. What do you want? They don't talk about a war. Maybe there's a reason why that theory can still hold, although it seems to contradict, could be that the, Tal the Babylonian Talmud is talking in an enigmatic way intentionally. I don't want to give a Hasidus class now, but theoretically, the way things should work is that the physical realm of things, since it's being powered by the spiritual world, they should be synchronized. Meaning that when things are more connected to the spiritual, they should thrive, and when things are less connected to the spiritual, they should eventually die out or, or come down. And that is true as long as divine presence, Shechina, is revealed in the world. And Shechina, divine presence, was revealed in the world since God gave the Torah all the way to destruction of the second temple. Because, you see... As long as there was the first temple, okay, you had it. Even when the first temple was gone, you had prophets. And prophecy is a revelation of the divine presence in the world. And even when there were no prophets, there was again the second temple. As long as there's divine presence in the world, the physical realm and the spiritual realm are synchronized. Not necessarily in an instantaneous manner, like a person's eat something on Yom Kippur, boom, heart attack, on the spot. No, not 
per se like that, but still. Karet, meaning the source of his life gets cut off. It could be that it's like a car that is driving. The motor, the engine shuts down. Oh yeah, sure, he can still maybe drive for another couple of miles because his car is already, but he won't be able to go uphill and definitely won't be able to go very far because the engine is dead. So it doesn't happen on the spot, but it will happen pretty, pretty quickly. But then comes a moment in Golos, where spiritual, where divine presence conceals itself. And that, and if you want to develop that idea, take in the third section of Tanya, the portion called the letter, the epistle of Tshuva, Egerisa Tshuva, fifth chapter and on. Now you say, oh, he talks about, about Bar Kochva there? No, he doesn't. But he talks about what I'm describing now. How come that what Torah says about rewards and punishment doesn't check out? It doesn't work. Which is a question a lot of people have, not in history, in their day-to-day -day life. It doesn't seem it's working. And he answers, because in time of what is called exile, divine exile, the spiritual realm and the physical realm are not synchronized. synchronized. Eventually, all, all roads lead to Rome, so to speak. They will line up, but you won't understand how it works. So things don't act and react with a corresponding manner. Meaning there is what happens in the spiritual world. You do mitzvot, you do Torah, good for you. And there are things that happen in the physical world that obey the laws of physics. And there is no direct interaction in war, even though it eventually lines up. But the eventually, you won't see it. Not in a manner that you can make the link. And here I want to tell you a story. One of the most famous stories, which I am convinced, and I, I, I didn't see it in all of these, I did see it in one place. I, I believe very much in that interpretation of that story, of one of the most Dramatic stories in, 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 in Judaism as a religion, which is the story of an immense sage deciding to leave religion. His name was none other than Elisha Ben Avuya. He was one of the pupils of Rabbi Akiva. <laughs> one second, one second, one second. Elisha Ben Avuya dropped out of religion went off the derech. Stop being religious. Thomas tells us a story. Why did he become not religious? And the story goes like this. One day he was on a road and he saw a father telling his son, please go and take the, the, the eggs that are over there and the nest, I can see a bird's nest up the tree. Most probably there must be eggs in it. So the son went up the tree. There was the mother bird sitting on the nest. He chased away the mother bird, thus doing the mitzvah of the Torah, shaleach the shalach sending away the, the, the mother bird. And he took the eggs. As he was about to go down, he tripped, fell, broke his neck, and died. Says the Talmud. When Elisha ben Avuya saw that someone who had just accomplished the two mitzvahs for which the Torah 
promised longevity. True, there are only two mitzvahs in Torah that are promised longevity. One is honoring your parents. The other one is the sending away of the bird. He said, how can it be? He just did both together. He did something for his father, and, he, and while doing so, he died. I don't believe anymore, and he dropped out. Now, always in my mind, I was not comfortable with that story. Why? Because it doesn't make sense. Because it doesn't make sense. It does not make sense that someone is religious. Or even more so, a rabbi, and even more so, a big sage. And because some one thing happens in his life which he can't understand, he drops out. No, he's not 16. I mean, come on. So you don't understand everything that happens. <laughs> I grow up. I'm sorry, with all the kavod, you know. Okay, so, so I didn't, like... No, it's, it, I, I never could wrap my head around this story. Something was just not making sense. He wants that, this is, oh, this is it, they're not religious anymore. What, is a baby? And then I once read an explanation that put my mind at ease. Alicia ben Avuya saw in the most blatant manner not the child. He never saw that child. This is an allegory. It's a metaphor. What did he see? He saw Yidna fighting for Tyra, Kiddush Hashem, and it not only didn't they win, it brought a massacre of unheard proportions. The massacre of the Bar Kokhva uprising is way worse than the massacre of the destruction of the temple. He saw his Rebbe being stripped of his skin. He saw Gdoilin being burned. And he came to the realization that Torah was not connected to the physical reality anymore. He's not saying Torah is not true. He's saying Torah doesn't matter. You hear what he's saying? It's irrelevant. It's disconnected. Someone took out the, the plug. It doesn't matter anymore. So if it doesn't matter, oh, so if it doesn't matter, it doesn't matter. See? Now he stayed, did he still believe in Hashem? Yes. Did he still believe in Tyra? Yes, he taught Tyra to his own student, Rabbi Ameir, even if he, after he stopped being religious. He just did not believe that it made a difference anymore. A kind of religious depression. It's not worse than just. Huh? I thought like it's kind of worse than just not believing at all. It's sad. It's more painful. Than it's more painful, 100%. It's 100% more painful. It's big pain. And, and so that expression that I read is that rabbis did not want to expand on that. Maybe I shouldn't either. Good point. And expand on that crisis of faith that he had. How, how can he be? So they gave a metaphorical image. A person went and took, and he did all the mitzvahs, and Tyra promised him, and it didn't happen. Of course it didn't happen in one day. It does, you don't collapse. Your whole system of faith doesn't collapse in one day. It rarely does. This is not one day. 
Was Elisha ben Avoy alive? Yeah, of course he was alive. The generation of Elisha ben Avoy is the generation of Bar Kochva. Where was he when his Rebbe screamed out, Hashem Echad? It's probably right next to him. Understand? How can it be? How can it be? How, how can Goyim kill the Tzaddik Yisraelim? It's, it's not possible. A guy can't kill a Tzaddik. A Tzaddik, the whole world lives on his energy. It's not possible. You, can you understand a crisis of faith that could come to a person? Sure, it can come to a person. It's not possible. But that was the reality. The Alter Rebbe explains that yes, in the times of Galut, in the times of exile, spirit, spirituality and physical reality are not synchronized. They don't interact in a logical way of causality, cause to effect. You do this, there will be this. You'll do this, there will be this. No, it doesn't work that way. And that's why Juliana, you started off with saying, it doesn't work that way. It's not because you want things to work. It doesn't work that way. It's not a worse. And here God decided it will work a different way. But you still have to keep religion. Because it lines up. Just not in ways you'll understand. In more mysterious ways. And here I have also my little theory. From that moment on, rabbis also understood that never ever again should we lead a physical war of independence based on religious criteria, saying if we fight for the Torah, we will win. No, don't, 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 don't. It's pikuach nefesh, too dangerous. Don't do that. And maybe, and here comes my maybe, together with the theory, maybe rabbis did not want to tell the whole story of the 24,000 pupils of Rabbi Akiva. Maybe, again, I'm going on out on a limp. Maybe they wanted to play on the words. It was a pulmos. I was like, pulmos, you mean a war, an epidemic? Anyway, it was bad. Why? Because maybe the story of having a big Rebbe, like Rabbi Akiva, identifying a military leader as being Moshiach, telling his Talmidin to go out in war, Maybe that is something that should not be repeated until the time will be upon us and Hashem will show it that the time is upon us. We shouldn't do that again. So it became like a hush-hush story. Let's fold up religion to a very small religious spiritual uh, uh, box of davening and eating kosher and doing Shabbat and stuff. And disconnect religion from nationalism and politics. And they succeeded. They did. This is the last time that those two sins will come together. Where religion and nationalism will be one and the same thing. Afterwards, it's all the way. And without opening up now, uh, the B-nest that, that is religion and Zionism. But it is definitely also one of the resistances that rabbis had against Zionism because 
in a way, religion had redefined itself to be something completely spiritual. What does it mean to be Jewish? It means to be religious. What does it mean to be religious? It means spiritual only. And what about who rules us? That's, that's not in our hands, right? That's Bashamayim. What? So you'll always stay under the rule of the non-Jews? No, until Mashiach will come. You understand? Dude? Until Mashiach will come. And he will bring us back to Jewish sovereignty. Until then, Judaism has nothing to do with sovereignty. That speech, girls, is a new speech. Because look here. You don't hear Rabbi Kiva speaking like that. You don't hear any of the Chachamim speaking like that. For them, of course, you fight for Torah. Fighting for Torah means to have a Medina. <laughs> I'm saying the way the ultra-religious, like badmouth, Jewish state. They're saying, ah, Medina. Medina means a Jewish state. But once upon a time, this was like, oh, no, of course you do. You want to be religious. You want to be religious. You have to have your state. Your kingdom, your sovereignty. That's being religious. That disappeared. It was gone. And I think that intentionally, sages made it disappear. Two things that we have. Do we have a sitter in English? Yeah, right there. Um, can you hand it to me? Thank you very much. Two passages that you have in the Siddur, and then maybe you say every day, that are related to the class of today. Well, the first one I already discussed, the second one I'm going to introduce now. Yeah, just perfect time. The first passage is, maybe you said it today already, especially if you had a tuna sandwich. So you, so, so you, you, you made birkat amazon, right? The, the blessing after a meal. The blessing after a meal, you realize we say, Uvenei Yerushalayim, and rebuild Jerusalem, your holy city, speedily. Baruch Hashem, blessed be you, Hashem. Bonevra Hamav Yerushalayim, who will rebuild Jerusalem with his mercy. And then we say, Amen. Why do we say Amen? To mark the end of the blessing after the meal. Eh? That's why we say here, Amen. Because this is the end of, of benching. Of the blessing after the meal. <laughs> it is. I don't know. My theory continues. So, so why do you say amen? Why do you say amen? Because it's the end. But it's not the end. Yeah. Yeah. Here it comes. It was the end. Until the year. 100. 100. Uh, so it says okay, some say it was 20 years. Some say it was, it was 40 years. So let's say 20 years. Until the year 155. In the year 155, meanwhile, Hadrian, Yemach Shemoy, and you can say that may his name be obliterated forever, because basically he was a Hitler of that time. Oh, I didn't say everything. I know, I'm, I'm like going backwards over. Oh, I started saying it and then, then I forgot it. Hadrian said he went after religious inspiration and he also went after national inspiration. He forbade the entrance to the city of Jerusalem. I started that. Another thing that he did. He renamed Jerusalem, Elia Capitolina, capital of Elia. Elia was his family name, Elias. Capital of that's my capital. And, and he did something that we still suffer from today, yeah. So next time you have an issue with that, say, I'm not thanking you, Hadrian, or for all kinds of reasons. He renamed, he, he said, he took out, he absolutely crossed out the name Judea. 
from any references, from any documents, from any books, should never be called Judea anymore, because Judea reminds it that it belongs to the Juden, to the Jews. It's the name of Judah. So how should it be called? Philistine. Nah, thank you for that. Because you imagine all the debates we wouldn't be having if it was the British mandate on Judea. We were like, hey, hello, Judea. And I'm like, hello, okay. J Judea, look it up. Like, if throughout the centuries it always would have maintained its original name, Judea, so many discussions would be so many easier. Right? Now you're saying, oh, so you guys went to Palestine. So what about the Palestinians? They were there before the Jews came. <laughs> it's not Palestine. That's Hadrian. Why did he? Well, he was messed up. And he was really angry. Uh, like, and, and he really, 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 like, he did an enormous, enormous harm by doing so. That will last for, like, thousands of years to come. So that was... He did all that. And one of the other things that he also did to break the spirit, you know how important it is for Jews to bury their dads? Tremendously important. Hadrian forbade the burial of all the Jewish soldiers of Beitar, which was the last place, which were tens of thousands. The hilltops were covered with them. The city he said, no burial. Let wildlife eat them. So that was part of the persecution. 20 years later, Hadrian will be long dead by then, but the prohibition was still standing until Antonine, and we'll talk about him in two classes from now, lifted the ban and allowed the dead to be buried. Gomorrah says that there were some tzaddikim amongst them because some of the bodies had not rotten at all. But that's besides the point. So they were buried. Harugay Betar, all the, the, the those who died in Betar were buried. And then the Nazi, the religious leader of the Sanhedrin of the time, which was Rabban Gamliel II, composed an additional forced blessing into the Birkat Amazon. And from that day on, we add a fourth blessing. Baruch Atah Hashem, blessed be you, Hashem, King of the Universe, benevolent God, our Father, our, our King, our Strength, our Creator, our Redeemer, our Maker, our Holy One, the Holy One of Jacob, our Shepherd, the Shepherd of Israel, the King. And then he comes, the King who is good and does good to all, each and every day. He has done good for us, he does good for us, he will do good for us. He has bestowed, he will, etc., etc., etc. That is a text that Rabban Gabriel, every time you bench, you tell the story of Bar Without knowing. This is a blessing that was written when the, 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 the man of Bar Kokhba, maybe Bar Kokhba himself, very, very um, logical to think because he died there. He died at Beitar. Maybe Bar Kokhba himself, although he did die a little bit earlier, so it could be he had been buried already. Uh, but, anyways, so that's one addition. And here comes this next thing, which is the introduction to the topic of last class. And with this, I finish next class. And with this, I finish. There was one Jewish group, only one group of Jews, which was also a Jewish group, who until then had just been a kind of a uh, whatever group within Judaism. I mean, the religious Jews, 
etc., etc., who had been a little bit distant with the rabbis because the rabbis did not accept most of their beliefs. But again, most of their beliefs were not making them heretics. Okay, for those of you who want with me in the class of the 13 principles, they believed in things that are a little bit like off, but not, I mean, no harm, no foul. But when it came to that uprising, the Bar Kochva uprising, that group of Jews decided to stay out of it. It was the only group of Jews who did not join this national undertaking. Not only did they stay out of it, they actually even collaborated with the Romans. After everything was finished, one of the things rabbis decided very painfully, because it was something that was counterintuitive by Jews. A Jew always looks at Jew, and you always have the love of Jews. But here you realize that within Judaism, within the Jewish people, there was a Jewish group who was working against the Jews. And after very long discussions, they decided to add an additional blessing to the Shmona Esrei, to the Amida. And I want to read you, you might know it, but listen carefully to the words and try to be a little bit historical. You have no idea how much when you... I, I, I tell you, from time to time, when I daven, I, have a, I don't concentrate on davening enough because I think about history, uh, which is not good. I'm not proud of it. I think you have no idea how much history this is in the Siddur. Like where does it come from? Who? When does it come? So li listen to this additional blessing, which will make it now a 19 blessing. Uh, uh, Abida. So it goes like this. Don't forget, we, Jewish people, stand in front of Hashem and say the following words. Let there be no hope for informers and may all the heretics and all the wicked instantly perish May all the enemies of your people be spirit, speedily extirpated. And may you swiftly upward break, crush, and subdue the reign of wickedness speedily in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who crushes enemies and subdues the wicked. So there's enemies that you crush, and there's wicked that you, subdue, that you have to subdue. What happened? Who are they talking about? Well, that happened after Bar Kochva. Now, anyone want to take a guess who it was? Was it the Essenes? No, but it was the descendants of the Essenes. The Essenian philosophy had influenced them greatly. They were Jews, putting on Talit, Tefillin, Kosher, Shabbat, you name it. But basically, they were separating themselves from the Jewish people. And this war, will be kind of the official opening statement of their, of the rift. Like, it could be, but no, it wasn't. And there's a reason why maybe you might not think of them, because the name I'm going to say now, you know them, but you don't think of them as Jews. The Christians. The Christians. The early Christians, also called Hebrew Christians. The, the first Christians. They were completely Jewish. What did they believe in? They believed in that there was this person called Yeshua that came down. They, by the way, did not share 
believes in deity, that is something that will come later on in, in, in the teachings of Paul and the later apostles. Okay, that's my goal. We'll talk about that in the next class, a little bit into details. By that time, there was no such a thing. I mean, we're Jews, we believe in one God. No trinity, no deity. And that there will be a second coming. Christ meaning the anointed one. Anointed one in Hebrew, anyone? Moshiach. So I know, I know, and I'm not, I don't want to make troubles to anyone. But I do know that literally translated Christians is Meshachist. Okay. <laughs> Meaning of Mashiach. Those who belong very, believe very strongly in a certain Mashiach. But for very long, it didn't matter, it didn't birth sages. Why? Because who cares? You have Jews who are completely religious, who follow everything, who are faithful in all aspects. They want to believe about a certain person who passed away a long time ago, that he was Mashiach and he will come back. You might not share the belief, but you know, look, what do I care? It seems like, pretty like, common that they would like yeah, well, you see, it happens again. No, okay, the Christians were particular with the second coming story. Right. That was a kind of a, that was a novelty. It was a novelty. That's a new twist. Okay, we didn't have that one yet. Okay, that's, that's a new one. And plus, this Yoshua character is not recognized by sages. Right. So that is a big difference with Bar Kokhba. Right, for sure. And plus, by the way, this Bar Kokhba story is an excellent story about the belief in Mashiach. Because Rabbi Akiva and the sages believed in him until he died. And then they called him Baal Kozma, the son of the deception. <laughs> Meaning, yeah, Baal Koziba is the city. Koziba is the city. Kochva was the hope, son of the star, the one that's going to be Moshiach. And when he died, the, Meaning, okay, meaning, okay, oops, I mean, wrong, okay, meaning, he, he deceived me, they, they didn't say he deceived us, because they were all for doors, wearing stones now, okay, yeah. like, they were all in it, but meaning, we, like, we were deceived by him, but not because of him, he was a source of deception for us, not, it does, it does, I know, I know, I know, I know, it could be that there was some criticism, that had he been really up to, maybe it would have finished out, but, you know, it's a lot of what ifs. Uh, in history, it's always a tricky thing. What ifs? So, the Christians at the, the Jewish, the Hebrew, will clearly and openly make their split with traditional Judaism, and that will lead to what will become afterwards the Christian, the Christianity of Paul, which will be completely outside of Judaism. We'll get that next week. Next week. Just know one thing: this was not an easy blessing to make. Standing in front of Hashem and asking God to do something about another Jew, very painful. And they hesitated, hesitated, hesitated a lot and said, who can write it? And then they asked someone to write it, etc., etc. And I, I always find it so inspiring that up until today, although we have now all those blessings for a long time already, with also the blessing where we ask Hashem that our enemies beat our own brothers and sisters, should be, etc., we still, call the, we still call the prayer Shmona Esrei. Mm. Well, it has been Cha Esrei, like five times longer than it has been Shmona Esrei. As if, although we have 19, 
we still like, yeah, well, I'm getting away. I mean, that's like temporary. They were temporary, it's like 1,700 years temporary. Yeah, it's still temporary. Meaning, we shouldn't have that kind of blessing. We shouldn't ask Hashem, take away the informers and our enemies, etc., etc. We should all, like, love and peace, etc. That's it for today. Continue next week, Bezrat Hashem. Thank you.